Hi folks, it's Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is November 9th, it's a Wednesday, and this is episode 781. And this is one of the coolest episodes of Survival Podcast we'll ever do. Because I have standing on the line all the way from Argentina, Fernando Aguirre, uh, also known as Furfal. And uh, he, of course, is one of the few people that can actually tell you what an economic collapse is like and what living through a collapse and its aftermath and the long-term consequences of a financial collapse are actually like without hype and bullshit and Hollywood and all that other stuff. And why can he do that? Because he's done it. He's actually lived through the economic collapse in Argentina that began in 2001. And he's here today to tell us what actually happens when a nation has an economic collapse. And unlike the people that are trying to sell you gold bars or this or that or some other thing, he'll tell you the real deal, what actually happens. He'll tell you where your preps actually fit in and what society is like after an economy completely uh, falls apart. We'll have him on in just a second. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, silverandgoldshop.com. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about the role that precious metals play in an economic breakdown. And you're going to hear today exactly what role that they play. And they do play a role in barter. And you're going to hear exactly how that is. I'm going to have Fernando tell you a couple stories about it. And after that, you're going to really know that silver and gold need to be part of your portfolio, of your investment portfolio. And I always say it's about 5 to 10% of your net wealth should be in precious metals. And one of the greatest places you can find really cool, uh, in fact, divisible silver rounds is at silverandgoldshop.com. You'll get great service uh, from Mary Beth Maidmont as well. Also, you know, we're heading up to Christmas and Thanksgiving and stuff. We've seen a lot of those little kiddos you only see once or twice a year uh, from extended family and what have you. And a lot of times we bring those kiddos gifts uh, a, a silver a silver round may be a much better gift for a child long term than a plastic toy from China. Just saying. So check out silverandgoldshop.com. Next up, Harvest Eating. You know what else is coming up? It's Christmas and Thanksgiving. And uh, if you want to make like people really you know blown away with what you're cooking, make sure you tune in uh, Thanksgiving week. On Monday of Thanksgiving week or Tuesday of Thanksgiving week, we will have Chef Keith Snow on of HarvestEating.com. Harvest Eating is awesome because I talk about all kinds of neat stuff you can grow in your gardens and you can find at CSAs and farmers markets and things like that. But a lot of that stuff you look at it and go, okay, now what do I do with an army? cucumber that's the length of my arm. You know, what do I do with this? What is what is this for? Well, Chef Keith Snow teaches you how to cook seasonally and locally uh, in a very healthy and fun way. That's why I love having him as a sponsor. He's also been a great guest, and he you know he talks a lot about cooking things with fresh foods and cooking things that you can use your preps to cook as well. So check out Harvest Eating and definitely consider getting his cookbook. It's a pretty awesome cookbook. It really uh, could actually be a picture book for your uh, coffee table. It's that awesome of a cookbook with that great 
great at photography in it and great good tasting recipes as well. Next up, remember you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And the Survival Podcast is now featured on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network, available at PrepperPodcast.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you'll be supporting the show at about 20 cents an episode. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service. Email me, jack at com before you join. And I will send you a special discount code. Just tell me a little bit about your service, what your job was, where you were, that type of thing. Don't go photocopying your ID or anything like that. I don't need that level of proof. Just tell me what you did and we'll hook you up and thank you for your service with a special discount for the Member Support Brigade. And with that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and I'm really excited to introduce my special guest today. I met Fernando for the first time in Salt Lake City and uh, at the, the uh, Preparedness Expo out there. And it was really like meeting someone that I already knew. Uh, I read his blog occasionally, but that's not what I mean. What I teach and what he's talking about actually happening are so in sync that we could just sit down and have conversation after conversation after conversation with each other, and it was very easy to do. And it actually told me... Uh, that I'm, I'm on track with the things that I'm teaching you. I really am. And, uh, that was a great thing to, to know that the things that I am expecting actually are the things that happen. Uh, Fernando's here to talk to you about more of that. Give you a little background on Fernando for those who do not know him. Fernando Ferfal Aguirre is an Argentinian survivalist with first-hand experience on surviving a full economic collapse. He's the author of the Modern Survival Manual, Surviving the Economic Collapse, which has become a preparedness and emergency disaster bestseller since 2009 when it was first published. Mr. Aguirre is also the editor of the ModernSurvivalist.com, a website dedicated to reality-based survival and preparedness, and we're fortunate to have him with us today on the Survival Podcast. Fernando, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, Jack, thanks for having me, and it's uh, so nice to speak with you again. Well, I appreciate you uh, being on the on the line with us here, all the way from Argentina. I think, like, probably eighty percent of my audience probably follows your blog and, and knows who you are. But for those that maybe don't, first time maybe they're ever hearing of you, can you give us a little bit about your background? Who are you? Well, my name is Fernando Aguirre. I've been posting articles online in the survival community for for almost 10 years now. Mostly it's stuff about uh, my experience here in Argentina since the economy collapsed in 2001. So I've been telling people how it is that it all went down and trying to share the knowledge gained uh, with the survival and preparedness community. You know... Um a lot of times when I'm talking about economic collapse, and it's a big-time subject because it's one of the things that I fear the most for my country going forward, I deal with a lot of, like, hype, and I deal with a lot of people that want to bring up, like, Weimar Germany and people needing a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a sack of potatoes and, and that type of an economic collapse. It's kind of what I call, like, the old world collapse. And that modern society is much, much different, and if they want to know what a modern economic collapse looks like, they should probably look south to Argentina and I usually leave it at that because it's you know it's like some small piece of a, of a bigger puzzle. Can you tell our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with you know what's all they know of Argentina is Buenos Aires and the pictures on TV, right? What actually happened in December of two thousand one uh, in in your country? Well, before December two thousand one, we had been living what we call the decade of sweet money, which is uh, uh, was during the nineties 
where most of the people here were making lots of, of money. People here were earning pesos, but the peso was artificially pegged to a dollar to a one-to-one exchange rate. So it was not uncommon for uh, people from Argentina to travel to U.S. and spend lots of money, and buy lots of stuff, import stuff in dollars was cheap as well. So we, we pretty much had a decade of, of an artificial situation where our exchange rate allowed us to live beyond our means. And I, I think that's something that lots of Americans can relate to, living beyond their means. Eventually, the party always ends, and when it does, it's never pretty. So we ended up destroying our national industry because of this cheap exchange rate. Everything being cheaper, being bought from abroad, means you're not producing anything locally because it's not good business. It, we, we also had a huge debt thanks to our politicians that made sure that debt was immense. And in 2001, all that, uh, that storm that was brewing eventually went down. So we ended up having to default on our debt, a uh, $132 billion U.S. dollar debt. The, um, the accounts w were frozen for everyone. The bank accounts were frozen, so you couldn't get your money out of the banks. The exchange rate uh, with the dollar started to jump very fast. Within within a day, it was 1 to 1.4. The next day, it was $1, 2 pesos. Uh, within a few days, it was $1, 4 pesos. So soon enough, you saw inflation killing your, your income. It just... word I, I hear lots of people using is the money melting in your pocket, just losing its value. All that caused uh, a huge stress on people. We were talking about rioting and looting on the streets that lasted for, for, for several days. We, we had the president resign and leave the building on a chopper. So it, it would be like the full... The full collapse of what you could expect, everything going wrong, that's what happened in 2001. And what, would you, what did you say the size of the debt was when you guys defaulted on it? $320 billion, was that it? It was $132 billion U.S. dollars. $132 billion. So what, what do you think when you look at us here in America and you see us with like $14 trillion worth of debt? Does that like scare you? Because it scares the hell out of me. Well, it's it should because because eventually you you have to. I don't want to get very philosophical, but eventually you have to to pay what you owe, right? Uh, there's no uh, there's no way around that. If the, the problem with all this started when when they when U.S. dropped the gold. Um, in, in the 60s, right? What is it that you call it? The, the gold, gold standard. Yeah, we kind of came gold off in, in, uh, in some steps. You know, we, we first had our first decoupling in the 30s, and then we had a final complete let go of it in, uh, in 71 under President Nixon. Right. So that, that's when all the problem actually starts. Uh, so you can see it's, it's been a while since all this uh, began. Uh, once you start inventing wealth, Uh, you get yourself into this problem, and the solution they keep finding is just getting into more and more debt. That's eventually, uh, I mean, keep digging to get yourself out of a hole is never going to be a solution. So it's uh, eventually someone will have to pay for all this. And I think that at some point people already are. Um, unfortunately, those that 
profited from this the most are not being held responsible, but it's being laid on the backs of, of the Americans in general, hardworking middle class Americans. You know, Fernando, if I was like a, a ridiculous optimist, I would, you know, ask you a question right now, like, well, what can we do in America to prevent the collapse from happening to, to fix the problem? But I'm not, because I believe that that's coming. So I think my more direct question to you is what can people in America do to begin preparing for the day of reckoning? Because to me, it is going to come. Yeah, well, it's not going to be a nice, it's not going to be a nice answer because the measures that people will have to take will, will be austerity on their, on their family, the way they spend money. You're talking about readjusting the way Americans live life in, as a whole. I mean, the wasting of money will have to end because there will be no other option. It's, it's going to be impossible to keep this uh, consumer, mass consuming industry going with, with no money. So it's going to be, uh, hopefully people will start doing this on their own and not find themselves bankrupt, but cutting down on expenses, trying to protect whatever you have. I, I don't like giving a percentage, but I, at least I'm talking about 20, 30% of your savings. I mean, if you don't put that into gold and silver, you're going to be losing it eventually as the dollar loses value. So you know, that's something we can relate to as well because we see it happen with our, with our peso at a greater rate, right? We, we're, we see it at, at a 25, 30% rate in terms of, of every year, the peso losing 25% of its value or inflation going up 25% every year. So inflation is going to be killing your dollar. So whatever you can do to protect it, it's going to be worthwhile for you. Yeah, you know, a lot of times I, I talk to people about precious metals, specifically gold and silver, and I get the objection that, you know, that, that, that you know, people aren't going to be taking gold and silver for, uh, for exchange in, in, a, in, a, in a breakdown economy, that they're going to be bartering food or whatever. And especially when I, you know, talk about things like divisible metal, like divisible coins and all. But you told me for a fact that in your country, this did happen. You even saw guys doing things like whipping out a gold chain and cutting off a certain number of links to pay for things. Yeah. I know it's, it's, sometimes it's not very popular among some people that prefer to think that it's just shiny metal. I think that most of it, it's because, you know, How much is gold right now? An ounce of gold, what is it, 1,800 bucks? Yeah, it's about 1,800 bucks. Somewhere between 17 and 18, it's been bouncing around there. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty expensive right now. So I, I suppose a, a psychological mechanism is I don't even need that. So I'm, I'm not going to be worrying about buying it. I'm, not, I'm convincing myself that I don't need it. Uh, the thing is, it's not only that I saw it once. I, I'm actually seeing it again. So right now we're having a problem with The dollar in Argentina, in Argentina being restricted, they're not letting us buy any other currency and the dollar is being restricted for us, the euro as well, all other currencies that are better than our own are being restricted and you're not allowed to buy that anymore. So what you're so, saying is you're not being able to convert your pesos into dollars. They're not letting you do right. that right now. <laughs> exactly. That's what lots of people That, that's what lots of people do here so as to protect themselves from the peso, which is even worse than the dollar in terms of, of stability. Uh, we know that the, the peso loses value uh, as you look at it. You know, you, you stare at the thing and it deteriorates in front of your eyes. So the, the dollar would be what for Americans would, would be precious metals. 
it's the, the 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 way of protecting what you have, your your wealth. So uh, I see that happening. I mean, I'm I saw it in 2001. We're seeing it again. This started last week, actually, so it's pretty recent. We see the market freezing completely. No one wants to spend a cent because everyone is just expecting the devaluation to come again. So it's during times like these that I, I see it so clearly that I, I feel no restraining, recommending people to put their, some of their, at least some of their money into gold and, gold and silver because, it's again, it's the only way in which you protect what you have during times of devaluation, during inflation. The only way I see you can protect it and not uh, take other more risky measures such as uh, buying real estate, which is an extremely volatile market in USA, Yeah, um, you know, one of the things, though, that I've always tried to tell people is, you know, I'm big on eliminating debt, and people eventually do it, and then they end up with this thing called surplus cash, like a year later, and I'll get emails from people freaking out because they have money, and I'm like, I don't think you should put 100% of your money into gold and silver because you need some of it for exchange now. And one of the things I've noticed on your blog, you've seen you talk about in your book is that cash is king even in these scenarios. Can you explain that to people, why there's kind of a, a dual role there? There's a place for cash and a place for metal. Well, I could actually give you a very recent example for myself. I'm, For example, right now I'm trying to sell some of my guns, and I find the problem that there's no one with money to spend, and those that have money don't want to be spending it. So I'm, for example, if I could have sold my Mossberg shotgun for... $600 last week, this week I have to think of maybe $500 or $400 because I have to play with that. I have to find someone that's willing to take the risk when no one wants it. So I, I saw this as well in 2001 when I was getting married. Some people had given me money for, for my wedding. And with that cash, I was able to, to, I was able to do a couple of sweet deals because of, of that Um, uh, that risky moment when no one wanted to take uh, the jump and spend that money, having the cash allows you to do some some of those things. Besides, it's what allows you to get by when the banks are closed. If you, if you never saw it, if you never went through times when uh, credit cards are not accepted, I mean, I'm not talking about a, an economic collapse. I'm also talking about when there's no power, when there's problems of of all sorts of, of, of things you can think of when people just uh, can't get by with cash only. So it's always a good idea to have cash at hand. So what I hear you saying, and this is, I guess, what I mean when I say the whole world is going on sale during, during some of these, these, these uh, events, is that even when money's being devalued and should be weaker, when people stop spending it, those who have it and can afford to spend it, it actually becomes more powerful for them in certain scenarios. Exactly, yeah. It's it's never, uh, uh, Jack, it's never easy, it's never simple. All these things are complex. Whoever tries to find a very easy, simple to understand answer uh, to this is, is not understanding it completely. I mean, you're talking about maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a month when having that cash gives you an edge. And maybe a month later, that cash you have is not worth half of it, right? So it's all about timing as well and understanding what's going on. So that's why the, the information and being in the know is so important because timing is everything in times like this. 
So th th then the only solution is to have both, and that's kind of what I was getting to, and that's kind of why I try to because what gets me is all these people advertising to 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 our audience, the same people you write for and I talk to every day. Keep trying to scare them into buying gold and silver and instead of making sensible recommendations. I say five to ten percent of your total wealth. You're saying twenty to thirty percent. You're talking of cash. So those numbers really aren't that far apart, but they're freaking these people out. They want them to put all their money there. And I just think that's a very, very dangerous thing to do because in a disaster, you don't get to pick the way that it looks and what happens. Yeah, especially when you consider that, I mean, we're talking uh, with your audience, um, we're talking with people that already are within the survival and preparedness community, and they, they do know a bit of what we're talking about here, so... Uh, they should know as well that there's other priorities as well besides having your uh, your, your your savings. There's the, the hardware part of what you need, that the food, having ways of providing water for yourself, your family, filtration me methods. All those things are important as well. So it's we, we cannot concentrate on one thing alone. Uh, so you have to diversify the way you prepare. There's lots of things you can do to waste money, right? So you have to be very smart and clever about all this. Absolutely. Let, let, let's go a little into the darker side now, if you don't mind, um, because I think that most people don't realize how bad, you know, a 25% inflationary annual economy is. Everybody's, again, looking back to Weimar and, you know, a thousand percent or what was the country recently that went uh, nuts uh, in the African country? Um, you know, right, like a... Yeah, yeah, they had like a, a $10 million dollar bill to buy. They have a, a, a $3 trillion dollar bill. Yeah, and, but the reality is that 25% is crippling, and it has a pretty big effect on everything in the, in the, in the nation, including things like criminal activity. What, what is the difference between, let's say, Argentina in 2000 and Argentina today as far as criminal activity and how dangerous certain areas are? The difference is huge, and that's why I insist so much in security. That's why I insist a lot on it, and I still don't think people understand completely how bad it can get. If we compare Argentina in 2000 when we compare it now, we're talking about two completely different countries. We're talking about a country in 2000 when the word kidnap was never heard of, unless you were talking about Colombia, or countries like that where those things happened. It didn't happen in our country. All those things happened in, in these poor third world countries, and we weren't one of them, right? So we, we didn't see that kind of crime. Of course, there was crime like everywhere else. There was robberies. Sometimes there were murders as well. But you, you didn't live with it so close, hitting so close to home. You didn't hear about your neighbors, your friends, your family members getting getting involved in this, suffering the consequences of this. So, the, the, I mean, it's... We ended up with a country where you either have to live in a, in a gated community or in a high-end uh, neighborhood where people can afford security of their own because the one provided by police alone is just not enough. So it, it's, it's pretty hard to live that way. If you ask any average Argentine person, there are two main concerns in life. The first one is going to be crime. The second one is going to be the economic uncertainty, the, the inflation, the economic problem. But... Always the first one is going to be the, the crime problem because that's the one you cannot fix, okay? And as terrible as it is living with 20, 20% inflation, which people have no idea how bad it is because you cannot plan your life that way, it, 
crime is even even worse because it ruins your life completely when it hits you. It, when you just see it on the news, it's one thing. When it hits home, that's a, an entirely different story. And, you know, you're talking about kind of figuring out where to live. Um, as I was reading your book, I, at first I got the, the the feeling that you were completely down on kind of the, the, the smaller areas, the more remote areas. And then what I realized is what you're kind of down on is the totally out there in the middle of nowhere remote area. And you're not real hip on uh, big cities either that you uh, kind of recommend in your book far more of kind of the small town community. Uh, why Why do you take that approach? Well... The larger metropolis, I mean, the, the huge cities, uh, of course, they, they represent lots of problems. And at least I, myself, I don't like living in one. I like something where I have actual air to breathe and, you know, I have my space and I don't have people all crowded. Y yet at the same time, uh, I cannot deny the, the facts, the, the things that I've seen in terms of being completely on your own. I mean, I have... The, the two friends that I have that own farms, both of them have been uh, have suffered uh, uh, robberies and attacks through those places uh, in recent years. So uh, I cannot honestly tell someone, you know, uh, go on, uh, go on your own in the middle of the woods, and that's going to be good for you, and you're going to be safe. Uh, that's something that lots of uh, people in U.S. Ha have a, a problem with because they they tell you, I live in the middle of the woods, I'm doing fine. I don't see anyone getting carjacked or anything in, in my neck of the woods, and it's safe and it's fine. What I tell those guys is, I believe you, dude, but you don't completely understand what I'm saying. You you haven't seen yet how bad it can get. When it gets really bad, if you got to your place using a vehicle, so will criminals. They will find you. They will know that you're a, a sweet target to hit. They will understand that you're vulnerable in many ways and... You're on your own, and help's not going to be coming for you. So if it gets really bad, being on your own is really not a good idea. If if you have something of a, of a smaller community, then at least you can work with your neighbors, with your friends, and find ways uh, of improving your situation. People have to be realistic about this. It's not going to be you know you and your your buddies uh, from from the block uh, pulling security with your ARs and shooting everyone that looks at you wrong. Maybe it's something as simple as talking about the problem you have. You know, uh, we have this problem, we have this security problem, and I still have to go to work. I still have to sh show up uh, at the factory and, and to the office. But maybe we can pull together a few resources, some money maybe, and hire security, which is what people do here. They hire security, and that improves their situation. Interesting. And what I hear you saying is something I think a lot of people are out of touch with. I think there's a lot of fantasy in this world that when you know the shit hits the fan and and and, and the, the the debt eventually comes down in a crash, that the whole country will just stop and that no one will go to work and everybody will just be hunkered down or bugging out. And yeah. you're, what you're saying and what I've been trying to tell people for freaking years is life goes on; it's just not as good as it used to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jack, it's right now. Whatever you think you're going to be doing later, just start doing it now. If it doesn't work now, it's not going to be working later because it, everything is going to be more complicated, <laughs> not not easier, right? Absolutely. I mean, whoever is listening to this right now, be honest with yourself and tell me straight to my face that you could uh, start pulling, you could uh, bug out right now, live whatever you plan on living, uh, pulling your security with your rifle and 
at the same time you're pulling security, you're farming the land, trading with these uh, guys that are also going to be survivalists in your same situation. Could you pull that right now? Could you live that way right now? Or, or do you have a job to show up to tomorrow? I mean, is that you? If that's you, it's not going to be easier later. It's going to be more complicated, not easier. Yeah, I completely agree. What are some of the advice you have for people setting up their home for better security? Well, it's a, that's a huge topic. It's start, starting with the basics of improving. Most houses in in U.S. they lack even a decent door to stop someone from from kicking it down. So, improving the your house in terms of a, a better door. The good locks in your doors and your windows, uh, having the alarm, having the dog, and besides that, working uh, as a family in terms of security because it's it's no good to have the best security system, having the, all the good locks and you being Mr. Uh, great Shooter, but then you have your family members not uh, playing along with you with all this and, you know, Not being being very complacent in terms of security, leaving the doors open, just not being aware of their surroundings as they should be. Working in different levels, whatever you do to make your house a harder target, it's going to be sending the guy looking for it for the next one, the one that is easier to hit, that's easier to break into. So maybe just the alarm and the dog. In current times, it may be enough for you. And I think things like fencing as well. I mean, sure, anybody can climb over a fence, but now it's another obstacle. Now, it's, yeah, if, it's, if, it's you, a, if you can put a fence, if you can set up a perimeter, that's indeed. I mean, if you have a perimeter, you have a a couple of dogs. You, we talked about that before, you know, about have, you having the, the the German Shepherd as a great dog, and they all. If, if you have a perimeter, you have a couple of dogs, and you have a visible alarm system. The guy is going to be looking for an easier target, not you, especially when the rest of the people are so uh, not understanding what's going on. Uh, here in Argentina, for example, the guy that, that doesn't have, that lacks burglar bars in his windows, that's the one that's going to be picked because everyone else does. Everyone else has burglar bars on their windows. They have a, a fenced perimeter. So all those things uh, improve the general level of security. So whichever is the one that has been left behind and hasn't been keeping up, to what the, the situation requires, those are the ones that are going to be getting picked first. Yeah, I mean, I look at it this way. If you have a good car thief, a guy that's good at jacking cars, he can get into any car and, you know, the, the term we, we think of as hotwire, I don't like that term. We won't go into that. But he can get in any car and steal it. And he can get in any car and steal it fast. But if he's looking to steal a car and he's walking down the road and he's looking at cars to pick one out, and he's looking for a soft target, and there's a car with the windows down, And and the the keys are in the ignition. Well, he's gonna steal that car because it's easy. Yeah, and, and that's yeah. when your your house is not secured. You're kind of like leaving the windows down and the keys in the ignition. A lot of this is common sense. I mean, there was this thread in a forum. I don't remember any which one it was. This guy he was complaining about stuff getting stolen from his truck. It was like three pages of of discussion of the different ways in which you could hunt down the this criminal, the, the, the different ballistics, the different ammunition that should be used. Someone asked the guy, but have you locked the, the door in your vehicle? He said, no, why should I? <laughs> you know? He, he was wow. planning on, on, on the weaponry needed to stop this criminal, 
criminal genius mind, but he ha he wasn't locking his door. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I want to go into dogs a little bit with you because you have a lot to say on that subject. Before I do, though, I want to kind of tie the fence back to the dogs. My experience has been this. If you have a fenced yard, especially like the whole hallway around the house, a perimeter like you were talking about, and you put dogs in there that are somewhat trained anyway, they very quickly determine that anybody inside that perimeter that wasn't welcome is 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 a target. And they become very protective of that space. And I think even more so than they do when they're just trained to stay around. That that fence becomes basically a barrier in their mind. And then the, the other side of that is if you have a big, tough dog that can be dangerous, uh, the only person getting attacked now is someone that was dumb enough to come in the fence. So you're being responsible, too, with your dog. Yeah. I mean, it's... It's one of the best things you can do if you can do it. If you can set up a perimeter and have dogs there, it is indeed one of the best things you can do in terms of security. Criminals just don't like big dogs. It's it's something in common in Argentina, in USA, in Russia, in South Africa. Everyone that emails me about it and or or the books I've read about it, they all say the same thing. I mean, it's like 60% or even more of of the criminals. They, they just will not go into a house if they know that there's a dog. If you make that big dogs and visible with a, with a given perimeter, you're improving your odds greatly. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think part of it is, think about it this way. Like, if I try to break in your house and you catch me, and you don't just shoot me right away, and I get a chance to, to talk and surrender, I can negotiate with you. You cannot negotiate with an angry 130-pound German Shepherd. They're not interested in what you have to say at all. And I think criminals instinctively know that. Yeah, it's, it's it's basic instinct. I mean, criminals—they are the—they are animals, and they have this <laughs> this instinct as well. So they behave like animals as well, in in spite of you know being human. So their instinct, their, their preserving instinct, is telling them that walking into that house with those big dogs is not a good idea for them. What are your thoughts on different breeds? I know you, you do like German shepherds, but you guys have a. Uh a particularly ferocious dog down there in Argentina. You want to tell folks about that that, that particular breed? Yeah, we have a breed that's called the Dogo Argentino, which lots of people confuse with a pit bull because it kind of looks similar, but uh, it's a dog that was... Uh, the breed was was actually created here in Argentina in a province called Córdoba, mostly for for purposes of hunting, but also so as to be a family dog and, and defense dog as well. So it's it's pretty courageous and it doesn't work very well in terms of security but it's mostly a hunting dog the thing is that given the crime we've been seeing in the last years this has worked as a testing ground for animals as well so one of the things I noticed is that the doggo is is actually the, the only animal that I keep hearing about that in spite of getting shot at still goes after the criminal still attacks in spite of being shot Very few dogs that I know of actually do that uh, consistently just because of the breed they are. I mean, they seem to have like a, almost like an immunity to pain from what I've seen. Yeah, well, they, they, they really don't feel pain. Uh, the breed was specifically made not to feel pain. So it's at some point, it's a pretty, uh, pretty complicated dog to work with if you don't have experience because it, you, it doesn't scare away from you if you hit it. If you hit the, you know, in the nose or something like that, it, it will not cower away from you. So, um, for example, I've seen it in in hunting when hunting boar, and the boar cuts the doggo up with with the tusks. 
they just stitch it, they just pull, push the guts right in, and they stitch it, and the dog doesn't even blink. <sighs> wow. Um, and then the other thing that you were telling me about them that makes them like a concern, I think, for some people, if they don't have the area set up right, is like my German Shepherd um, will give you a warning first. He'll basically bark and growl and tell you, if you come in here, you're going to have a problem, now go away. Where What you're telling me about the Dogo is a Dogo will basically just hide and wait for you. Yeah, because it's a hunting dog, it will usually stalk instead of bark and make the person realize that he's there. He just If he sees someone breaking into the house, and this is something that has happened several times, not just once or twice, they, they just see someone breaking in and they don't even bark. They just wait for it, and once he's inside, they attack. So, you know, it's, it has pretty bloody results, but maybe if you want a dog that alerts you, Maybe it's not the best thing, but it's a very courageous, strong, and uh, and willful animal. There's been doggos that weighing maybe 80 pounds killed bulls on their own. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly something dog. you have to be very responsible with if you choose to have one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If It's the kind of dog that if you give it to your grandmother and he treats it, and she treats it like, you know, like a kid sitting it on the table and, and spoon feeding him, you know, like, <laughs> like a baby. Uh, the dog just, it doesn't take well not having a master, a clear defined master. So that's something you have to be careful about. If, if you're not ready to assume the role in the pack, the dog gets really confused and upset. So you're a pretty big fan of German Shepherds as well too, right? Yeah, I like it because it, it's a, a great dog to work with. It's so smart and it understands so well what you mean. So, um, I mean, that I see it why it's the favorite police dog everywhere in the, in the planet. My big thing with, like, when I look at things like a, like a Dogo or um, like a Rottweiler or something like that, if the dog actually goes after somebody and I want the dog off, I can get the German Shepherd off where I, I fear that I would not be able to pull something like it. Like They're like single-minded. They're going to keep going until they kill. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. So it, it is a great dog, but it requires um, you know, some understanding of the breed as well. Awesome, awesome. So um, more uh, on the way of security, what are you, what's your advice on what to carry in the way of guns, knives, other defensive tools? Well, first of all, uh, I, I recommend actually carrying something on you at all times. And how many times have you talked with people that they don't carry? They, they don't have their weapon with them uh, at all times. If you don't have it with you, it's... It's really of little use. Sometimes even having a, a pocket knife, a, a folder, it's, it is at least a weapon. And I know of people that have used it even against armed criminals with firearms, just having the knife but having the know-how and the training of how to use it actually saving their lives because they had at least that knife. So carry your knife with you at all times. Carry your firearm with you at all times. That's something that I, I cannot insist enough, especially given that people in USA are blessed and have the Second Amendment, which grants you that right. It's, it's a complete waste not to use it. And I had a teacher once that told me that the rights that you don't use are like muscles. If you don't use them, eventually you, you lose them, right? If you don't use your rights, you lose them. So 
especially with the Second Amendment, it's such a, a valuable right. People should make a greater use of it. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I always remember in school, we were always told that about your right to vote. You know, if you don't exercise your, your right to vote, Jack, then you won't be able to vote someday. And it amazes me that teachers spill that out so quick about one right, but they completely ignore another one. And in our country, you know, the patriots kind of believe that the Second Amendment is the right that makes all the other rights enforceable. And an armed citizen actually can, can maintain the rest of his rights. Yeah, and I agree with that 100%. If you look at our countries, they all pretty much say the same thing, right? They all give you the right to, to free speech and the right to this and that. How many countries actually give you the right to have, besides that, the power to enforce it if it comes to that? The yeah. only one that I know of is USA. Yeah, and, 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 and I, I believe, folks, if we don't stand strong with that, they'll take that away as soon as they can. Because nobody, nobody in charge wants the people you're in charge of to be able to enforce the rules. Uh, they want it the other way around. On, on what to carry, though, specifically, I mean, what do you recommend for people to carry as a handgun? I mean, obviously any gun's better than no gun, but, you know, do you have pre preference on a handgun? Yeah, I, I mean, a gun is better than no gun, but sometimes people take that as, okay, I'll just carry any anything that crosses my mind, and they end up with some very bad choices. If you're going to be carrying, just just go go with something that you know is good as well. Yeah, I, I very much like the Glock, and that's what I recommend everyone. Uh, even for people that don't like Glocks, I tell them, okay, just get over it and, and get a Glock. Uh, because that's what I've seen in, in classes time and again work, while others usually end up failing sooner or later. So my recommendation is a Glock, maybe a Glock 17, Glock 19. Myself, I like the Glock 31, which is 357 SIG which is a nice caliber uh, for defense. But 9mm with good hollow pound ammunition is going to be doing the job just as well. And one thing I always tell people is you should – having your handgun and not knowing how to use it is like having your vehicle and not knowing how to drive. Sometimes people think they know how to shoot and they know what they're going to be doing for defense, but they've never even taken a single class on it. If you never even took basic firearms training for defense, you're not going to be doing something that you've never even learned before. So do take the classes, and during those classes, you also learn what works and what doesn't. Maybe you thought that a particular gun was great for you. Maybe maybe you like the, the Taurus Judge a lot because it fires this shot shell that's very impressive. And then you go to a class and you realize that, that maybe the Taurus Judge is not the best option for you. And you, and you see the guy next to you rocking a, a, Glock, 9, a, a Glock 19, and he's putting lots of uh, rounds in target. He's reloading faster. He's more accurate with it. That's when you learn what works for you or not. So not only taking the classes, but also carrying the same firearm you use for training. I completely agree with that. On the other side of the coin, though, you always recommend carrying a cutting tool, a knife, and we've talked about that a lot on the air before, but I'd like to get maybe some of your thoughts to the audience on what makes a good knife in the way, and I know you carry usually two knives, you said, at least, because one is more of an everyday cut and stuff, and but you want that defensive weapon to be sharp at all times. So for that defensive knife, what are you looking for in a defensive knife? Well, as you said, I... Really, I always have on my right pocket, I have, I, I'm in fact holding it in my hand right now, a Letterman Charge, 
which is what I use for, you know, everyday purposes. Whenever I need something cut, I have my letterman there with a clip in my pocket, so that's what I use. And on my left pocket, I will have something like uh, a four-inch, five-inch folder, which I I use specifically for that. For I keep it for defense, so I keep it always razor sharp, not use it. And I usually have the cold steel, the the, the vaquero, cold steel vaquero, which is kind of a curved blade, which I like because it has a nice sweep to it. And you also have an, a nice penetrating tip as well. So I think the combination is pretty sweet. If not, the, the Spyderco um, Resilience, which is a, a nice knife as well. The, the Spyderco Endura as well. Those are nice knives. That I, I like those uh, sort of knives. Something big. For defense, I always like something big with a good penetrating tip and easy to open and a proven design. Yeah, I agree. I'm actually looking at the Vaqueros now. It's a pretty nice-looking knife frame. I've been carrying uh, Carson Design uh, uh, 14SFG, uh, which is an open-on-draw or one-hand-open, either-or. Uh, pretty nice knife. It's half serrated, half straight edge. But I was reading your, your, your book. You actually prefer for a defensive knife, a knife that's a full-profile uh, serrated knife. And you made a pretty good case for it. You want to share that here? Yeah, well, specifically with, with Vaquero, I like that it's a, it's a knife that's going to be catching. Uh, the thing is that with shorter blades, what happens is that they tend to be better at penetrating, at stabbing, than slashing. With, with a good um, serrated edge, it catches more material and it works better at slashing. Uh, a straight edge that is also razor sharp, it's going to be slashing nicely as well. But you actually have to test both of them. I tested my my, my vaquero with a, um, a boxing bag that I was about to throw away. It was several layers of, of leather. And slashing, I saw that it penetrated nicely when slashing several layers of leather. So that's a good indication of what I can expect from it. So either... The thing is that sometimes serrated edges are vary a lot from brand to brand. So they're not all equal. You have to find one that doesn't catch in the material and fails to penetrate when slashing. So it's kind of a, a technical thing. But if, if you have a straight edge and you keep it razor sharp, that's also very good. What, what I was thinking when I was reading your book is over the years, having you know played with knives since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, I've had the occasion to occasionally cut myself uh, doing various t things. And what... I kind of thought about when I when I thought about that was when you cut yourself with a serrated edge, it tends to hurt more. And yeah. not only do you want to stop the attack through enough bloodletting or or brutality, if you can stop the attack with some level of pain compliance. And, and what I've noticed as I've actually uh, was cut one time in a fight by somebody with a knife. It was actually a straight razor. And uh, it was the fight was over before I realized I'd cut on the forearm about four inch very deep cut. And uh, I really didn't feel it. I think if I'd have been cut somewhere in the body, I would have felt it. Uh, but to me, a, a knife that rips and tears, you're going to know you were cut. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the serrated edge makes, as you describe it, it feels more painful. I've also cut myself with both one time or another. And, yeah, I, I, I can say the same thing. It does hurt quite more. Yeah, I think it's because it, it's it shredded. It shreds through the wound instead of simply uh, uh, separating the tissue apart. It shreds through it, 
and it makes a wound that it's probably going to be bleeding more as well. So those are all good things in terms of what you want for, for defensive purposes. And I think people maybe think we're getting a little bit graphic here, but the reality is this is what you live with in your country now. This is you have to be prepared to do these things because other people will do them to you if you're not prepared to defend yourself. Oh, but by all means, I mean, when people sometimes when we talk about these things and they say, okay, this is too graphic, this is too violent. You know what's violent? Losing a friend like we did here, getting shot in the back and stabbed and, and you know, destroying a life like they do. These these animals, because that's the only way to describe it, these animals, you have to react with with extreme, uh, you have to be aggressive in your in your answer. You have to, your reply has to be very aggressive because if you go halfway through it, They see this and it's not going to be working for you. On the kind of training we do here, we insist a lot on how brutal they are towards you during the crimes, during the robberies, during the kidnappings, the brutality, how they hit you, how, how they, they beat you even if you're in the floor defenseless, how they hit kids, how they, they cut babies. I mean, these are total animals. And if you don't react the way you should with them, you're going to be losing, and losing is not an option when facing these folks. Yeah, I mean, I've always been the person that said that compliance is only useful if it's feigned compliance. In other words, uh, the only time I'm going to comply is if I'm actually trying to use it to buy time to look for an opportunity and, and, and respond with as much force as, as possible and with as much maliciousness as possible. And I think there's some people out there that have this whole, you know, I don't think they can get their head around it, that somebody would want what they have bad enough to do that much damage to them. But there are people who will do it just because they like to do it. They're sick, twisted animals, as you say. And as I think that a big part of, like there's two things going on in Argentina and in any nation going through a similar uh, dynamic. One, because people are more desperate, they're quicker to commit crime. And two, because the, the resources are more stretched, There's less enforcement of the law and less protection, so it's like a criminal's nirvana. Yeah, and there's also the problem of pure hatred towards those that have. There's hatred towards the middle class specifically, and unfortunately this is promoted by the government as well, which is always insisting on blaming the middle class on everything, uh, as, if, as if the middle class is to be responsible for everything that went wrong in the country. So they not only want what you have, they're willing to kill you for it, they also hate you to levels that we don't comprehend. And this is something that people in USA are going to be seeing as well. Like it or not, you're going to be seeing it as well. People that just hate your guts because you have what they don't have. And That's very interesting. Life, yeah, and you, you live the life that they never the saw. With some of the current things that are going on in America right now, uh, and I'm not going to go there because they said I wouldn't go there again with one particular movement, but there is this animosity. And uh, uh, for those in, uh, that are sitting out there going, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right to me. The middle class is the problem. Let me translate it to, you know, uh, United States of America class warfare. The, the upper middle class and the middle class, the solid people that are solidly in the middle class in the media today, they just call us 
the wealthy or the rich or the well off and then everybody else exactly. is poor. And, and it, it, that, but when they say the rich, they're not talking about the guy that flies around on a Learjet. And I don't think people get this yet today that this movement toward this class warfare, this newest class warfare division of haves and have nots, if you have a nice house and a decent job and basic stuff, you are the wealthy. You are the rich. I know you don't see yourself that way, but the lower element sees you that way. And that's exactly. why in London, exactly. when they said they were going after rich people, they were tearing apart mom and pop storefronts. Well, these people weren't rich. You know, they were people that had, you know, were no, no different than any other middle class person. They just had some level of what they owned that could be symbolized and attacked. I, I, with all this movement, I mean, you're sometimes talking about people that maybe have more money than you do, but they have this twisted philosophy of uh, kind of uh, this socialist communist thing going on that maybe these guys have more money than you, but they they talk as if you are the rich and you're the one to be blamed for everything. Maybe you're just an average guy that pays his taxes and that's it, you know? Maybe that's you, but they they label you as rich. And they target you specifically. They target this segment of society that when when you hear on the news, yeah, we're going after the rich, you, you think, okay, they're going to be going after <laughs> this Hollywood actor that has four private jets. No, they're talking about you. It's not, it's not uh, this philanthropy guy full of money. It's you. No, because that guy has all his money tax sheltered anyway. They're not going to tax his money. They can say whatever they want about Warren Buffett says he's only taxed at 17%. I'll tell you why Warren Buffett is taxed at 17%. Because he's very freaking smart with what he does with his money. It's not because the tax code's not fair. Whatever the code is, those type of people have people that are paid to figure it out for them. And when you hear that, and I think this is as we get deeper and deeper in this debt hole, and they 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 lie to us and tell us they can fix it, they're going to tell they're going to use words like sacrifice, uh, like everybody doing their fair share, everybody pulling their part, which means taking away from those that are still playing by the rules and giving to those who are not. Redistribution of, of income. <laughs> See, there's nothing new, folks. This is all, this is already played out with our neighbors to the south. Fernando's been through this. This is exactly, I mean, when you look at modern day headlines out of, uh, of America, do you just say, yeah, seen that before? Yep, see, no, I know what's coming next. Do you ever feel that way? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, I mean, <laughs> I really don't want to get into some of this, but when when our president traveled to the, the G20 meeting, uh, the, the president of U.S. was commending her on her re-election and actually told Sarkozy, we have to learn from this lady on the way she does things. Okay, So if, if people don't completely see what's going on and they don't see what's coming, I mean, it's it's already there. If, if you Google Argentina, USA, politics, economy, in comparison, you will see... It, they even use the same words, words as, as you said, sacrifice, it's time for sacrifice, but they're not going to be the ones doing the sacrifice. They're talking about you doing the sacrifice. Like they, Absolutely. They're doing the same thing. The, the redistribution of income, you know, we're going to be taking from the rich and giving to the poor and redistributing and, and distributing everything fairly. It's, they're talking about putting your, you in slavery because that's what it is, you know, through through ever increase in taxes so as to keep this going, they're talking about putting you in slavery and putting your kids in slavery through the taxes and through all these measures they're taking and redistributing everything so that 
the, the low, reducing the, the society to the lowest possible common denominator. Yeah, running at the speed of the slowest man in formation. And if he's going too fast, well, let's hit him in the kneecap and slow him down even further. I mean, that's how I feel sometimes. I just, some things that have recently happened here. I'm wondering if you saw things like this happen either after or before everything really came apart down there. For instance, we have a place called Highland Park, Michigan, a Detroit suburb. Detroit's broke. Uh, Highland Park, though, is really broke. It's about a two square mile little, uh, you know, suburb, uh, what would you call it? A uh, suburb of, of Detroit. Um, they just basically couldn't pay their electric bill. Uh, can't pay the electric bill. So they just took out a third of all the streetlights. So a lot of these parts of the town now are just dark, uh, in the evening because they can't pay the, they can't pay the light bill. Yeah. I mean, did you yeah, see that's... measures like that taken prior to the collapse? Yeah, and it's still things that are, that keep going on now. I mean, they, they sacrifice, that's why it's so tricky sometimes to say, you know, stick to the stick to the city or stick to the country because, uh, especially if you're talking about a smaller town, sometimes what they do is, you know, if if there's not enough voters, they just you know let them without power because there's not going to be enough people protesting. So, you know, having uh, less people in those cases works against you. Uh, there's um, one of the, the the highways that I take often. It's called the Unofficially, it's called um, the dark road precisely because of that. They don't have any lighting in it. So it, it's one of the places where you will most commonly get get attacked, get, get carjacked because there, there's no lighting. Yet at the same time, across that road in the shantytown right in front of it, people are just stealing power and not paying for it. So doesn't really make much sense. No, it doesn't. You, you talk a lot about training to deal with uh, violent confrontations in your book. And again, uh, Fernando's book is uh, The Modern Survival Manual, Surviving the Economic Collapse. You guys are definitely going to want to check that out. I'll have a link for you. But you talk a lot about uh, this training for women and how women often, often don't gravitate to this, but they're often the most likely victims. And your advice to women that are learning to defend themselves, like in a hand-to-hand -hand combat scenario, is to spar with men. Well, if you're going to be getting attacked, guess, guess who's that going to be? I mean, you're not going to be getting attacked by your, your, your other soccer mom friend that's going to be afraid of breaking her nail or hurting you or undo your hair. You're going to be facing a guy that's probably outweighting you, very violent, very aggressive. My wife's sister, she got mud going out of the bank. The guy just grabbed her by the hair, threw her to the floor, kicked her a couple of times and took her purse. If you go about this halfway and, you know, you, you just, there's lots of marketing in this as well. There's lots of selling feel-good sensations and people go to these uh, idol box training things and they don't actually learn anything or practice real defense, but they feel good about themselves. And, you know, that brings money to the gym or the teacher. But is that really going to be helping you? No. The day you face a real criminal, that's not going to be helping you. So you have to, one of the key elements of training is keeping it as realistic as possible. If we're talking about hand hand to hand, you have to spar. You, there's no other option. You have to spar. You have to maybe get a bloody nose in it. You know, just use your your mouthpiece so as to not break a tooth or two, but keep it as real as possible. And when it comes to guns, you cannot actually you cannot shoot each other, of course. But you can do that with airsoft pistols, practicing what you've been training the prior, before that, using the, the airsoft pistols, using 
force and force training. Um, those are things you have to do, keeping it as real as possible. Yeah, one of the most realistic trainings I ever did I was with some of these Russian guys, uh, and we were doing some training on you know hand to hand combat, self defense, and all. but we did some firearms training. We used airsoft pistols. But what was interesting is they would have like one guy shooting at you, you're shooting back, but while while you're dealing with that, there's a just huge Russian dude throwing tennis balls at your head at about 80 miles an hour. <laughs> so you're having to actually react in a real world scenario, and what he'd say is, hey, that tennis ball is going to hurt a hell of a lot less than a nine millimeter. And it makes you perform at a different level. And I think the more we can do to bring realism, you talk about training with training knives as well, you know, uh, replicas of the knife you carry, a you know, rubber knife or what have you, and, and learn to actually use these things in a real-world scenario. Yeah. Yeah, we we do lots of that with airsoft. For example, uh, during the, the, the last class I took that was for advanced pistol, advanced defensive pistol, We were running different scenarios. We had uh, a district attorney with, uh, with us, actually. This district attorney brought real cases that he knew of, and we set up just the way it had gone down. And we would repeat it time and again, seeing how we could have done better and putting people in those situations without knowing priorly what was going to be happening. And I, I was, I usually have, have body armor with me for, for the training because Uh, I know of people that got shot in training, but for for the force on force part, uh, my instructor told me, okay, get that off of you because you're not going to be feeling any pain uh, when you get shot with the airsoft pistol, and pain is actually an important part of this training. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and it, it does hurt. There has to be some rules of engagement like to prevent people from ending up with them lodged in earlobes, and I've, I've actually seen that uh, on one airsoft form. There was a guy... Uh, that was shot at close range with an airsoft uh, electro electric gun, you know, the automatic, and he had like yeah. five pellets embedded in the lobe of his ear, like you know, it almost looked like it was done like as a decoration. It didn't look like it felt very good though. <laughs> But he probably will keep his head down next time. I mean, I, that, there is the other side of it, you know. When I was a kid. If you were going to burn yourself on the stove, well, instead of like people freaking out over it and calling child services, you let the kid burn his hand. He'll only do it once, and he'll never do it again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and you learn. That's the way that you learn. So, you know, a lot of times we have discussions in the U.S., am I going to bug in or bug out? And as I was reading toward the end of your book and with some of the conversations I've had with you, um, you're sort of planning to bug out yourself. Uh, right now, but you're doing it on an international basis. You want to talk a little bit about the options with, you know, having some options internationally to actually, when one country is in a bad way, to be able to just completely go somewhere else. Yeah, that's ultimately that's uh, again, it's one of those big topics. Uh, ultimately, when things really are bad, you don't have much of a choice besides that. When when a country goes down. What we saw in 2001 was uh, a wealthy South American country that was the exception to the rule. When you say South America, you think poor, you think dirty. Argentina used to be the exception. It was it was the Paris, Buenos Aires was the Paris of South America, and to some point that was true. It was indeed better than the neighbors. Through this decade, we've seen it become one of our neighbors, become like our neighbors as well become just yet another third world country. And right now with, with the most recent election, uh, we're Venezuela. Practically we're, we're Venezuela 
we're we have a president that very much resembles Hugo Chavez, and we're we're being told what we can use our money for and not. Uh, this the, these new rules for buying dollars, they actually check you out with the IRS, the, the AFIP, which is our 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 version of the IRS, and they tell you, okay, you make three uh, thousand bucks a month, and you you pay. Five uh, hundred uh, in your club and five hundred in your kid's school. So we don't think you should be spending more than fifty dollars to buy a uh, fifty a uh, hundred uh, pesos to buy dollars. So that's what, what we're gonna be allowing you. Uh, I mean, when has it come to a point when we're being allowed to buy things or not? I mean, it's, it, it reached that point that I feel there's no return. Especially, you know why? Because we're talking about people actually thinking this way as well. The worst of this isn't what happened, the measures that are being taken that are uh, the most authoritarian thing I've ever seen, but the worst part is that people are with, are, are with it. People are actually along with it. When they took our, our retirements, when they took our retirements uh, and they told us that they were doing us a favor, people actually start believing that. They think that taking what, what's rightfully yours in some ways doing you a favor. So when you have half of the population thinking that way, there's no other option but to leave the country. So that's what I'm doing. It's, it's what, if I look back at what my grandparents did, my grandparents, they came from Spain. They left during the Civil War. Um, ultimate, that's the ultimate bug out, in my opinion. When things don't have a solution, uh, and it's going to be decades before you see things go back to normal. Maybe they're not going to be going back to normal ever because a country you once knew doesn't exist anymore. That's when you have to take these these decisions. I mean, I know U.S. is different in terms of... U.S. is different, is really different from any other country. Uh, I cringe at the thought of having to leave USA and moving to some other country. Yeah, I think that the day that happens... We're gonna be seeing a world that few of us will will enjoy much. Yeah, I mean, it, here's my concern yeah. with that, Fernando. You said this earlier, and I, I forgot to say it. So now that you're saying it, now I want to I want to bring this up. You say that you, right now you're sheltering your money into dollars wherever wherever you can. I know for a fact from my conversations with Valery Azanov when the Soviet Union fell apart in Russia and the Ukraine and many of the other states that fell apart out of the Soviet Union. That's exactly what people there did. They would turn their, their, their rubles into dollars as quickly yeah. as they could. And I've seen it in many other countries. I remember when I was a young man in Honduras in, in the army, if you took a, a, a American dollar and wrapped a rock around it and threw it out in the street where the kids were playing, you could entertain yourself with the fight that would go on to get one American dollar. It was a big deal. So my concern is if this country collapses, where the hell does the world go? If the dollar's not the security blanket anymore, is it only gold and silver? I mean, whose currency is going to stand if the dollar falls? I think it's going to be gold and silver. I well, I don't just think. I'm pretty much sure that when if, I don't want to use the word when. I I always try to be as positive as possible because again, one of the things I've learned through all this is that if you don't keep a positive mindset, if you don't laugh when when you have the chance, if you don't enjoy the good things you have. Uh, the bad things are, are, are enough. There's enough of those, so you have to keep positive. So uh, let's say that if the dollar collapses instead of when the dollar collapses, 
if it collapses, people are going to be going to gold and silver. That's 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 U.S.'s version of what for us is a dollar. That's why I think it's important to have those precious metals because gold and silver you cannot invent, you cannot print it, you cannot lie your way through it. It's as tangible as it gets, and it's it may go up or down in price, but it's never going to be getting any lighter. Absolutely. An ounce will be an ounce will be an ounce. And I guess the ounce of gold that you're looking at today was probably formed before the first human ever walked on the planet. And it'll yeah. still probably be here long after we're all gone. And that's that's something and, and, to think about. A thousand years ago, that ounce of gold and that ounce of silver still bought you. Um, there was this good write-up I saw some time ago, uh, someone making the comparison that, you know, like uh, a hundred years ago, with, with an ounce of gold, you bought yourself a very, a very nice suit. A pair of shoes, a belt, and a nice handgun, craft, handcrafted a handgun uh, of that time. Now, if you look at, uh, at it today, uh, an ounce of gold also buys you a very nice suit, a very nice belt, set of shoes, and a very nice handgun as well. You know, and if, I and if you go back to today. Roman times, that ounce of gold bought you a nice uh, those dresses they wore, uh, those cloths with a nice belt and crafted shoes as well. And a sword, you know, instead of a gun. And a sword, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, which was the gun of its time, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I completely agree with that, and I think that it's um, it, it's 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 just another case to make sure that you have some of it in your holdings. I'm a little less optimistic than you, I, but I also, when I say the dollar collapsed, I also understand that the dollar has collapsed multiple times in history, and it's it's taken different forms. We had. You know, a cur when you talked about FDR and the gold standard, we first came off of that. That was a currency collapse. That was flat out a currency collapse. We we took yeah. people's gold away that was worth $35 in the international market, and we gave them 20 in return for an ounce of gold. It was a 15. It was it was an almost doubling. It was almost a, it was almost a triple digit inflation overnight. But no one saw it as that. They were duped. And then when we went off silver, you're talking about you know making comparisons in 1964. If you had a quarter in your hand in America, it was made out of silver, 90% silver. And that quarter would buy you about a gallon of gasoline at just about any gas pump in America. Today, if you have that 1964 silver quarter, it actually buys you about a gallon and a quarter to a gallon and a half of gas. Its, it's power to purchase has remained the same, but a quarter ain't going to fill up a pot bottle, right? you know, a modern quarter, uh, because the silver held its value. Yeah, because if you look at it, at it from a historical, if put yourself in a, in an overpowering position and you look at man's history and you look at it in terms of thousands of years, you will still see that thousands of years ago that gold and silver was still worth something as we were talking about before. So when people say, okay, it's just shiny metal, I'm gonna, I don't want any gold or silver and uh, I'm gonna be selling, you know, a, a, a loaf of bread for a, um, an ounce of gold to people when they are hungry, you know, That's plain stupid because it's not you who dictates the rule. It's the market which dictates how much one thing or another is worth. So, so if in your mind you think that it's just shiny metal, well, enjoy that blindness you have. But the market is telling you something else. But I want you to bust another myth, though. We have a lot of people out there that just think I'm going to store up silver and gold. And then when the, the collapse comes, I'm going to become rich overnight. That doesn't <laughs> quite work out either, does it? Well, no, I mean, uh, no, because um, the the business of gold went up 500% uh, after 2001. Uh, but, it's, I mean, 
you're still talking about um, about precious metals that uh, it's it's understandable that it's going to be uh, peaking during the worst of, of the collapse. But other than that, we're still talking about it keeping its value through history. So it's just a way of protecting. It's not a way of making yourself terribly rich. Sometimes people talk about gold and silver as an investment. I quickly correct them and I tell them, no, it's not an investment. Don't think of it as, as a way in which you're going to be making yourself rich. Think of it as a way in which you protect what you have now, what you have earned until now. Yeah, I completely agree because the other side of the evil coin is whatever money you do make on it during a collapse will be taxed away. Uh, you're, you're going into a barter situation, kind of an underground marketplace, to be able to get the maximum yield out of it. Because if you go sell it and cash it in for dollars or pesos or rupees or whatever, the, the government, so we have international listeners, obviously, and this is true in any country, when the country goes into this type of decay, they, they take more, not less, from the people. I mean, you told me they, like your equivalent to the IRS was doing things down there like going, okay, well, this guy bought a big screen TV. Maybe he has yeah. more money. Yeah, exactly. One of the things you should expect as of right now is taxes getting much worse than they already are. As you said, when things go down like this, what you see is an increase in taxation. It's, it's always going after those that have and those that produce. Warren Buffett is not going to be suffering any of this because he's above all that. And people like him, they're not going to be suffering all this. But it's the average guy that gets nailed this way through taxes, through taxation, taxing absolutely everything you can think of and more government control over your life. Uh, as you said, here they look if you buy... This was during the World Soccer Cup. Uh, the, the World Soccer Cup was just starting. So they started looking who bought b big screen TVs and they were going after those guys. Uh, right now they go after you if you, buy, if you even try to buy dollars. So if you look at it from an American perspective, you can see that When, when it happens uh, and, and people uh, try to take advantage of their goal, if they go through the, the normal channels, they're going to be seeing you, knowing about you, and going after you so that you're not this, uh, the, this rich entrepreneur profiting from the disgrace and taking advantage of the dollar you hoarded, the, the gold you've been hoarding. Yeah, they call you a price gouger and a hoarder, right? That's what they, that's yeah. the, that's the other class warfare thing. Anybody who's prepared is evil, right? Uh, right. Cause, cause you're, you're the reason that everybody else is not prepared. Like it's your fault. <laughs> and I, I see a lot of that coming and I, it, 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 it scares me, but I think that we can still, the only thing we can do is be as prepared as possible. Fernando, this has been an awesome interview. I've loved having you on. I would love to have you back on anytime you'd want to be on. You want to tell people a little bit more about your site, your book, where they can learn more about you, follow you uh, on, a, on a kind of a daily basis and what have you? Yeah, um, they can. There's my, my book, which is in Amazon. It's called The Modern Survival Manual, Surviving the Economic Collapse, which uh, in which I cover lots of the things we've been talking about. And there's also my website, which is uh, www.themodernsurvivalist.com or www fairfal f e r f a l dot com both websites are full of articles that I've written about all this sort of stuff and it's been my pleasure as well and whenever you feel like it just give me a call and we'll do this again 
Well, we'll definitely do that. What I might do is put out a call to the audience right here. If you have a question for a follow-up interview with Fernando, just put it in today's show notes in the comment section. I'll put them all back together, and once we collect up a dozen or two dozen of them, we'll get in touch with Fernando and bring him back on. Uh, folks, on the book, I just finally got a copy. Fernando told me not to buy one because he was going to send it to me, but it took him a long time to do it, so I've only uh, been able to kind of peruse it overnight. But it's an awesome book, and I really, really recommend it. You'll hear everything. You'll, you'll find everything that we talked about today and more in there. And this is the big thing. There are a lot of people out there that can write a lot of books that are theoretical about what it looks like when a society economically collapses. But then you got people that actually went through it and can articulate it. And let me put it to you this way. They give a damn enough about you somewhere else to tell you what happens. Uh, that's what Fernando's all about. That's what his book's about. So I can't recommend it highly enough. And again, Fernando, thanks for being with us today. Uh, thank you, Jack. And whenever you want, we'll do this again and just enjoy a lot talking with you. All right, folks. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Fernando Aguirre, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution